You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Moritz Sieben and I, Niels Kastelasner, back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, which is our weekly ongoing raw exploration of the world of rules-based investing, and of course, where we also answer your questions. But today we're changing the format a bit, because we are delighted to be joined by a very special guest, namely Jack Swager, a true legend in our industry, and I hope that all of you listening today have read at least one of his Market Wizards books, if not all of them. So let me start by saying welcome to the show, Jack. It's great to have you here. And and of course, also, hi to you, Moritz. Well, thank you very much. Hey, Jack. Hi, Niels. Hey. Hello. Now, we, of course, very much look forward to diving into the world of trading and what you have learned from many, many hours of conversation with some of the best traders of all times. But before we do, we normally just do a quick review of the past week from the lens of a trend follower. And so while we do that. Maybe you have an extra sip of your morning coffee and we'll quickly run through some of the highlights of last week, which I hope is fine with you, Jack. Moritz, since we want to spend as much as we can uh, in terms of time with Jack, of course, uh, why don't we do a very short round up this week? And in terms of a market wrap, I mean, we kind of knew that this week would be influenced by the outcome of the US elections, even if the election took a few days to officially get decided. And it's Kind of interesting to see how stocks initially rallied strongly on the, um, you know, expected Trump win early on. But then it extended its rally when Biden started to look like the winner, where the major networks now only a couple of hours ago actually confirmed him. Perhaps the markets really rallied on the relief that the whole election is over and in an orderly way, better than they expected, perhaps. And I'm sure we might see a few challenges of the results. But anyway, Smarts, how was your week? Amazing week. The week had finally arrived. I mean, I remember that for the past four weeks, every day we've been speaking about that election, right? And everybody had their own opinions about what's going to happen. And the markets were, you know, bidding volatility up because they were fearing a contested election. And then finally, Tuesday, the day arrived and it and it looked like, you know, at first that Biden was going to do it. And then it swung over to Trump and the, the odds have changed again. And then they changed back to Biden. So it's it's been it's been fascinating. What was surprising to me is that what I heard and you know what I read is that you know if Trump had won, everybody was expecting the markets, the markets meaning the the equity markets in particular, going higher, right? Because of Trump. But then you know now it's Biden and the markets are what higher, right? So it seems to be the same outcome. Doesn't really matter. But looking at my portfolio, I had a good week. Maybe not up as much as some of my trend-following peers, but about 60 basis points. I uh, have a lot of positions on, lots of diversification in that portfolio. I'm still negative for the year, but, you know, of course, I made money uh, by being along the equity markets, along the S&P, along the European emissions contract, along Bitcoin, I have to say. Uh, quite a stellar performance this week. And only very few losers. So um, quite happy with that. You know, six, seven weeks to go before the year comes to a close and uh, let's see what happens, right? Maybe this portfolio turns around positive at the end. You never know. You never, you never know. know. I mean, on our side, our trend-following program actually had a pretty strong start to uh, November, led by the currencies, U.S. equities and 
quite a few of the commodities as well. Nat gas actually was the best market for the week. We did suffer some losses in our short European equity positions and a few of the short energy positions, but not enough to really spoil the week. And November was also interesting in a completely different for a different reason, because namely, uh, you know, at Dun Capital, we just started our 47th year of our continuous track record. Which is a great segue, actually, to you, Jack, as you are, I'm sure, one of the people in the world that has looked at most track records of futures traders in order to select the ones that you want to feature in your amazing series of Market Wizards books. So uh, perhaps I should start by asking you if you've seen many continuous track records that are longer than 47 years. No, I don't think I've seen any that are longer than 47 years. So you're on good ground there. Okay, good stuff. Now, we have lots of questions for you, of course. And let me just sort of kick it off. Speaking about track records and kind of the difference when we talk about what makes a market wizard, I'm sure that length of track record plays a role in that. So I wanted to ask you just from a purely dividing managers or traders into rules-based or systematic traders and discretionary traders. Where do you see most of these market wizards fall, actually? And, and, and also maybe how should we define at least the minimum kind of track record that you would ideally see to even be able to determine whether you're looking at, at a market wizard or not? Okay, so let's take the questions one, uh, one at a time. As far as... Um are market wizards more likely to be discretionary or systematic? That's pretty easy to answer. And I think it's been true from the very first book and certainly true through this book. And that is discretionary. Because what I'm looking for is not just good performance, not just great performance, but literally extraordinary performance. And uh, there is extraordinary performance in, in systematic trading, but it's not the systematic trading that you're referring to or most people think of. It's in the few quant shops that have, or, or people like, I've interviewed a couple of those myself, sort of like Thorpe or D.E. Shaw. Now, I wouldn't consider them systematic trading, although they are computerized traders, but it's not so much as systematic as it is finding in small inefficiencies in the market and trading it at huge amount of times in lots of different markets. And those inefficiencies can be complex. They can be, you know, of course, Shaw didn't tell me exactly what they what he did. And although Thorpe did to some, but for somebody like Shaw is probably more representative of the type of trading that a Renaissance would do or those type of, you know, that type of shop. And Renaissance name one probably has, if not the best, but one of the best return risk records ever compiled. And I suspect shops like that, uh, like like Shaw or, or Renaissance, uh, what they're doing is following probably tens of thousands, at least thousands, but probably tens of thousands of different securities worldwide and using probably scores of mathematical models, if not hundreds. I don't know. I'm just guessing. And looking for pattern inefficiencies in various combinations, which you just could never see without applying fairly rigorous math models and a tremendous processing power. I think they're, they're more like 
a casino. They're just they're looking to get a 50, you know, low 50%. I don't know the, what the percentage is, but they only need a low 50% edge. Sure. And just by repeating yeah. it so often, they get this very, you know, very <laughs> uh, imposing type of return risk performance. But that's not, when, when people talk about systematic trading, that's not what they're thinking. They're thinking of, you know, some, you know, pattern recognition. I mean, that's, that's pattern recognition of a different type, but looking for something that's more like a position that's held for at least, a day and uh, usually in weeks or months and sometimes longer even. So uh, that type of systematic trading is very difficult to get the type of return risk that I'm looking for or even the compounded return. So just to put it in context, when I say what I'm looking for, uh, taking the most recent book on No Market Wizards, on the return risk side, some of the, some of the best traders there are, we're talking Sortino ratios, I don't like the sharp ratio, but right. th think think of the, the Sortino ratio equivalent to the sharp, but adjusted for correctly calculated and adjusted for the asymmetry of returns. So you're you're focusing not on you're not penalizing big big gains. You're only penalizing big losses. But I'm talking like Sortino ratios in in one case I think over twenty, which would be equivalent to a sharp ratio over twenty. I mean just right. Totally off the map, and there are quite a few traders who have numbers certainly above five and even above ten. So those are the, you don't see that in conventional track records, for sure. Now on on the compounding thing, I've got one trader in there who started with twenty five hundred, yeah, sixteen years ago, something like that, fifty million when I was doing the book, and I think he's eighty million plus right now. So maybe a hundred million, I don't know. So. <laughs> I mean, it just keeps going up every time I speak to him. So that type sure. of that type of compounding is just it's just extraordinary. Yeah. And those type of records you just don't get with what people think of as systematic trading. I know, and I'm sure we'll get into that a bit more. But before we get into all the detailed questions that we have for you, Jack, I wanted to say I think I read your first book a few years after I started my investment career back in the late 1980s and this certainly inspired me to get into trend following more than 30 years ago and since we all know how difficult that strategy is i don't know if i should blame you or thank you at this stage but what i do know is i, I certainly want to thank you for taking time out on on your saturday to uh, spend some time with moritz and me so what's on your mind moritz Many things on my mind. I mean, I, I did speak to Jack a bit more than a week ago. We did an interview in Real Vision, so I had some of the questions already uh, already asked then. But um, one of the questions that I thought I should have asked you in that interview, I but I didn't, is to what extent could you maybe separate the traders into those that apply more like mean reversion type of trading, short volatility type of trading, which is like more like, you know, exploiting that there is a left tail, right? Or a, a negative skew to the distribution of returns versus traders that do the opposite of that. And they're more like volatility seeking. They're more like trend or momentum oriented, regardless of whether they're systematic or discretionary in that approach. But the two trading styles to me seem to be really two separate categories, right? And if, if you have, or you could, could tell us, if you made the observation, I'm not sure, but maybe you've made the observation that, you know, you could put some of the traders into one camp and some of the traders into the other camp. We'd like to hear about it. Actually, that's a reasonable way of dividing traders. 
I didn't make it for myself in this book because I think a lot of quite a number of traders would would manifest actually both qualities. So I think of some of the traders who were, let's say, event traders. Well, they were to trade the event in a certain way, depending on what the exact, let's say it was a Federal Reserve announcement, what the exact announcement was, how the market reacted to it. And they might trade it, hey, whether that's trend, whether that's trend or counter trend, it really neither, and it's both. So they might initially they might initially go with with where the market was going. Well, I guess no. Actually, that type of trading is really never trend or counter trend because you're trading an event and the market immediate response. And I can think of one of the traders in the book, which he had extraordinary, it was like a triple digit day return. And it was based on correctly trading one of these central bank announcements. And he took a very, very large position immediately. And and what this was, I don't have to speak in amorphous terms. This was when we were doing uh, the um, quantitative easing. At the beginning quantitative easing in the U.S., people may not remember this. It would seem natural, and I think probably people believe quantitative easing, that the U.S. started buying, that what it meant was, for those who are familiar with it at all, what it meant was that the U.S. would be the central bank would not be controlling the interest rate by just short-term rates, but would go to bonds and the longer end of the, of the spectrum of the yield curve to, to have some impact because rates were already near zero and the short-term didn't do anything. So that's what, the, that's, what it's, that's what it is predominantly, and that's what people think. But initially, that's not what the Fed bought. They didn't buy U.S. bonds. Initially, they bought mortgage securities, that, those type of assets. Uh, so this trader believed that, that it was a matter of time that before they started buying treasuries, long-term treasuries, and uh, was prepared for that. And when it was announced, he immediately took a very, very large position, made an enormous amount of money, like I said, a triple-digit return that day. And probably, I don't remember how long it was a, it might have been just minutes that he held the position, but the I, and and the bond market moved literally four full points in in minutes on that on that news, and maybe he missed the middle beginning of it, but he got most of it, and then he got out. Now the what I found fascinating when I looked at that day on the charts, and this goes right to the heart of the question you're talking about trend counter trend. The market was in a downtrend before that, and then. That day, there's this huge one-bar spike up. And then after that day, the downtrend continues. So he literally bought this one day, got out near the top of that spike, and that was a trade. So he was long. It wasn't that he was going counter-trend. He was reacting. He had planned out how the market would react to this critical piece of news that he was anticipating. He acted instantaneously. And hence the profit. But it wasn't that he was going, it wasn't the counter trend trade. He didn't necessarily believe the bond market was going up. He just felt that for that instant, it was going to go up. So that's kind of, and I can go to different traders and show similar things where there it's not really trend or counter trend per se. Some of the traders are more trend oriented, but not, not totally. Like a Peter Brand, I think most of his trades are looking for trends to develop and 
trying to pick the right chart points, but it's not so much a trend following as it is picking the exact point where he thinks the market is beginning to trend, and he'll be out, he'll miss, he'll miss, miss most of the trend. But that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to just get the high probability short-term move. technical trade. Short-term, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I, like I say, so many traders, the, the systematic trader in the book, there's one purely systematic trader in the book, and he started out with stock trading strategies to where they're trend following, and at some point those weren't working, and he made a transition. And at one point he he was completely counter trend, and then eventually he was trend and counter trend, but he kept on adapting his systems as the market environment changed. Right. Yeah, I might come back to him. I think I know which chapter yeah. that is. But anyways, um, when you told that story just now of someone who, you know, got in and 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 made, you know, triple digit returns in, in a matter of minutes, I can't help thinking that we often talk about risk-adjusted returns, but we never really talk about lock-adjusted returns. And, you know, if you do something like that, I mean, it could have gone the other way and you've been completely wiped out. Who knows? And so I'm kind of interested, maybe more philosophically, the thing, you know, how luck may or may not play a role in 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 some of these managers' career. So, so I want to try and present kind of four categories of luck that I saw from someone called Naval Ravikant, who's a who has a big Twitter following, and but I think he describes locks luck in in four different ways, which I think is quite appealing so so the first kind of luck is where you hope luck just finds you the second kind is where you hustle until you stumble into it the third kind of luck is where you prepare the mind and be sensitive to chances that other people miss and the fourth kind of luck is you become the best at what you do you refine what you do until this is true an opportunity will seek you out luck becomes your destiny and i know this is just four different categories that he's described, but are there any of these when you hear them where you say, yeah, definitely all the market whistles fall into this one? It's, well, you're raising an interesting point. One, I guess, of all the questions I've had, that's not one that's come up in that in that uh, way. So first of all, on luck. Over the long term, records like I, I look for are, you can't attribute them to luck because it's just it's too many it's just too much you know you yeah you could be lucky sure you if you're trading long equities in 1997 uh you could have a phenomenal record you know till 2000 and it could be 100% luck all right but if you're talking about track records of 10 years or 20 years or 30 years it's really pushing the envelope to say that it's luck so that's that's one part but the other part is Yes, I can give you, there are instances in the book which are luck, and yet it's not luck because the person had the qualities to take advantage of it. So I won't go through the whole story, but there's one, the trader I mentioned who had turned the 2,500 into 50 million. So he had this stock where he bought, uh, you know, like a, at a buck or something like that, without going into the whole story. And uh, he got a lot of, you know, fanfare and everything else. It, it was, uh, and not not for good reason, not good for fundamental reasons, but for just, it was one of those things that people just were piling onto. And he knew that it, this was kind of a questionable thing, but he was, 
He bought it because he saw a lot of insider trading. He saw this huge trade, which told him that the insiders had gotten the stock. And so he got in right, right with them and, uh, you know, right after them, I should say. And then, you know, was following this thing up and he couldn't kind of saw people getting more and more bullish. People who didn't know anything about stocks talking about this. He, um, he takes the summer off and he travels and he's in the middle of Africa with no communication. Uh, he does have his Blackberry. He has a friend who, who, who knows who would probably follow him on the stock. And the stock, he calls him one day and he says the stock is up to 20. And he, he wasn't even following the stock at that point anymore. He just had it and periodically would maybe get, you know, when he was somewhere where he, he can get communication. But he wasn't at such a point at that day. And he gets a call and his friend says it's 25. And he basically tells him he should get out. And he tries desperately. He was able to communicate with his friend because they both had Blackberries. It's it's an odd thing. Uh, they, Blackberry owners could communicate with each other, but it doesn't mean they can communicate through internet or whatever. And he went to the office and he got somehow patched in. And after a number of, you know, 10 minutes, what is he able to get orders in? And he got out of everything. And he gets back to his tent, you know, I guess, you know, not to residence. And he gets in the call from his friend and he's saying, it's down to $5. What should I do? Now, you could say, it's yeah, I mean, that's tremendous luck. He happened to get the call just at the right time. He happened to get the communication through. He got a, but he had the instincts to act immediately. Now, is that luck or is it skill? And it's come up in other wizard books. It, I forget somebody said, I, I asked a question about luck and something. I said, but you have to, you know, people make their own luck in a way. And that was the, you know, paraphrasing what the answer was. So there's some pure yeah. luck, but a lot of it is just just having the instincts to to do to take to take advantage of it. Yeah, and, and so it sounds to me like you're really pointing in the direction of this category four, which I completely agree with, where it says become the best of what you do, refine what you do until that's true. Opportunity will seek you out. Luck becomes your destiny. It really sounds like that. And when I look at all the managers, not just the people I've interviewed on the podcast, but all the people I've known in 30 years in this business, the people who have become really successful, I have to say, they are the best of them. I mean, they are so focused. And by the way, we had someone on not long ago who uh, used to work with John Henry. John Henry, of course, left our industry and became incredibly successful in baseball and now in European soccer. And we asked him, what do you think the thing is that makes him so successful? And he said his ability to focus on one thing is extraordinary. And so right. you could probably say that that he's another good example of, of these things. Yeah, no, very interesting in, in indeed. Moritz, um, where do you want to go next? I don't want to stay too long with the topic of luck, but I want to spin that topic of luck just a little bit because... Like Jack was saying, I mean, if you have like a 30-year track record, you're really pushing the envelope and, you know, saying that that is just pure luck, right? That's very, very improbable. But when we look at a period such as, say, 2010 to 2020, the past 10 years, right? And I'm not sure if you have traders in your book that have a 10-year track record or if 10 years is just not long enough. But let's just, let's just zoom in on that period. For that period of time, you can find a number of naive, let's just call them naive, not lucky, but naive strategies, strategies that buy the dip, 
they always buy the third day down. They always buy the S&P if it's down more than 2% on the day, right? They are always long the S&P in the overnight session and they're short or flat during the regular session. Things of that nature. And if you do that, that doesn't require any skill. Of course, you have to detect that simple trading system, right? But then there is, after that point, no skill involved. But if you just ran that strategy, regardless of how risky that may be at some point in time, you would have produced tremendous shop ratios and tremendous returns, right? Just by benefiting from the market setup and the market environment and the characteristic and the flows that just happened in the past 10 years. So it's kind of like you're benefiting from that tailwind. But if that wind changes because, I don't know, inflation pops up or, you know, fiat debasement and gold goes through the roof and the monetary system breaks down, then, you know, there's a very high propensity for those traders to... Um, to maybe blow up because their strategies will just be too risky and, and and they're trading the wrong thing. So when you interviewed the traders, did you sometimes have the feeling or a hunch that maybe there's something like that going on there where they're using just relatively naive, curve-fit type of things and they've just happened to have the benefit of, you know, being in the past 10 years where things have been so so strange in a way, market-wise? No, because none of the traders uh, traded a strategy that was a proxy for being or similar to being long the stock market. Uh, so a, a lot of traders were were relatively short term to begin with. So I mean, one is purely a day trader. Several others make most of their profits from short term trades. So by definition, and 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 in all those cases, the trades could be long or you know. They can be long or short, and they don't necessarily be in the stock market at all. They could be in currencies or or future, you know, other futures markets. So a lot of traders, there's no correlation between their record. Almost all the traders, no correlation. Maybe all the traders. I would say probably all the traders don't are not going to be correlated to the market or not in if any significant uh, way. Now the one trader. You know, we talked about that made the, you know the twenty five hundred to fifty million. He doesn't go short, but he's selectively going long. He's buying actually near lows of things, and he's getting out near highs of things. That's the way he trades, and without going into how he's doing it, but that's that's what his trades look like. So it's not based on being long the market. Uh, it's based on finding specific specific new ideas. And getting into them before anybody else does. And also, I would say, even if somebody used a strategy like you described, Moritz, what would that look like in March 2020? Yeah, it would be devastating. And you also had a few other times in, in the last decade where it would have been pretty lethal. So unless the person had a strategy which bought a small dip and stayed with it until it went back to a new high, that, with the benefit of hindsight, you know, would have done okay, but essentially, if you're doing that, you're you're just duplicating being along the market more or less, and uh, it wouldn't be extraordinary in any way. Like I say, March, you know, March would have been like a devastating hit on 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 that type of strategy. And assuming people are getting out after a certain amount of loss, that downside volatility would have a big impact. Yeah, I mean, I'm just staying on that theme a little bit. I think it's quite interesting because, and I don't know if it's exactly the same trader you're referring to, but the one I read in chapter two, 
was very interesting, uh, very colorful. And obviously, as he say, as you write, he didn't really want to be in the book. And I kind of, once I had read it, I kind of thought, yeah, I can see why why that is. So I'll leave that as a cliffhanger for for the audience to go and buy the book and read the chapter. But but there is something interesting about that because clearly you pick up on his record and and you see how great it is and 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 so on and so forth. But I, and I don't want to be harsh on 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 these people because I'm sure they're fantastic. But but I can't still throw away the the thought that they did blow up a couple of times, right? And and here's a guy who's like started four firms and closed five and, and all over the place kind of thing. In in a sense, his story is it's not like one guy who sits down, he builds his track record, it continues. It's it's really yeah, I it was I felt it was different than many of the other market wizards that I remember from your books. So I don't know if you have some thoughts about about that. I don't know how to phrase the question, to be honest. It just it just stood out. It just stood out to me. Yeah. So specifically, referring to Jason Shapiro, specifically, his career could be divided into two halves. The first part, the first decade or so, and thereafter. So during that first decade, he... He took like a smaller amount of money, what was fifty hundred thousand, and two different occasions built it up to something like a million, and then completely blew it all out. The second time, at least he was he had the good luck to buy a Porsche along the way, and so when he completely blew up his account, and when I say blow up, I mean wiped it out. He at least had the car left, so and right. the car would have been gone too. I mean that money would have been gone too if it would have been. But he learned from his mistakes and. Uh, He's a very contrary. In fact, we talked before about trend or contrary. He's very contrary. He's by nature somebody who wants to be opposite everybody else, and so and that that incident, that's who he is. That's his autonomy. The reason he got killed. I mean, of course, that's a dangerous strategy in a way. But the reason he got killed really was because it wasn't married with proper risk management, mm-hmm. and eventually he learned that. And he he ended up developing a counter trend a counter trend approach, not counter trend so much as contrary contrary opinion type of approach, but having rigorous uh, risk discipline. And one of the things that he 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 does or did, he saw other traders or other people, and he recognized himself in them. And he would almost use he he had people that he knew. If they were bullish, he wanted to be bearish because right. he said, and he made it clear. He said, it's not that I'm better than him. It's not that I'm smarter than him. But he is who I was. I see. I know how that's going to end. And if he, you know, so that's, but he had the ability to change our way and recognize his flaw. And actually, he's trading against his earlier self. The way he trades now, he's really trading opposite to the way his earlier self traded. It's a fascinating story. It's a fascinating chapter in, in your book. And also because I thought that here's someone that he didn't seem, and I don't know about his the later part of his career, of course, but but certainly from some of the things that you wrote, which was really funny, by the way, he just didn't uh, exemplify discipline to me. I mean, he would do things on a wimp. I mean, he would yeah, trade against people. Beginning. Exactly. Trade against people on CNBC's Fast Money Show. He would do... All sorts of crazy things, right? So I'm kind of surprised that he did so well, but I'm glad that uh, 
for him that he did. So he'll use that as a, as a minor indicator. And he'll sometimes, it doesn't mean he's always opposite. The market has to be in the proper environment. It has to be accompanied by the market action. So it's not just enough that everybody's bullish if he wants to go short. But he have, has to be a situation where, where you know, the, the well, he uses like the CFTC numbers, uh, you right. know, uh, as a traders as, report, you know, commitment, commitment report, traders yeah. report. Um, so he has to have that. And he has to also see the market acting. Even that, that's not enough by itself because markets can trend a long time after against what those reports are implying. But he also has to see action. So that starts to confirm it. For example, if he believes the market is overbought and everybody's bullish, he also has to see something like some bullish news come out and the market goes down, you know, or something like that. And, right. And yeah, it's so it's 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 not as simple as just going count the trend. Yeah. But one thing I think was implied in your when you were talking about him originally, your question is this idea that he wiped out a couple of times. That actually it happens happened in many of the interviews I did, going back to the original Market Wizards book. Some of the best yep. traders I ever interviewed literally wiped totally totally destroyed their account a couple, you know, one or more times before they eventually became enormously successful. So that by itself is not unusual. That in fact, one of the big surprises I had when I when I started doing these books were some of these traders who were so extraordinary actually were horrible in the beginning. Uh, so that to me was that a, is fascinating. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that is fascinating. Actually, They're really, really interesting. I think the the, the percentage of traders, or if, if we if we put them in relation to another, the percentage of traders that at some point in their career had a failure, a severe problem, or even a blowout, is uh, this is my guess, probably north of seventy percent, maybe even north of eighty percent, that ran into some sort of an issue with their trading, and then they learned from that experience and they corrected it later on and they became better. There are only a handful of traders that I can really, off the top of my head, say that I've, maybe they've had problems that we've never heard about them. But, you know, say, say like a Michael Blatt, for instance, or an Ed Thorpe, you know, I don't know. I've never read about them running into problems or failing or blowing up, right? But most of the traders in your book, they have had that experience of difficulty and they, you know, learned from it and came back stronger. I think this is, this is, this is a fact. One question I wanted to ask is, when I read the books, all of the Market Wizard books, there's there's like the topic of risk control, risk management, position sizing, stop losses, you know, setting up trades in an asymmetric way, where I have the feeling that essentially all the traders tend to agree on that point. Risk control is important. Stop losses are important, right? Knowing where you get out before you get in, these type of things. There's one thing where I sometimes have the feeling that they disagree. And this is the topic of diversification, where you have some traders saying, I really favor a diversified portfolio. And I give you a name, Etsy Coda said that in your book, in the, in the first book, right? He says like, you know, I want to have a diversified portfolio. I'm following these trends. And he's suggesting to new traders that if they don't have the capital available to have a diversified portfolio, then maybe they should wait until they have the capital to be diversified. On the other side of that, let's say there's Druckenmiller, 
who goes out and says diversification is the most misguided concept that is taught in business schools. And if you see a position that's working and he's probing the position, he's going in, like he's saying, oh, we've put some money on, we've put some positions on loosely defined, like a smaller amount. And if it goes his way, then he goes like, then you have to be a pig and you go for the juggler and diversification is out of the window. So really here again, we have a very clear separation between traders, both of them successful in their own ways, but one extremely concentrated, you know, depending on maybe one or two things, and the other ones highly diversified and spreading their bets. Yeah, I uh, I totally uh, agree with what you said. Uh, that there are things where there are commonalities among the traders, like risk management, with very rare exception. And there are things where you have people on opposite sides. So like diversification, yes, there are traders uh, in this book, in fact, there are traders who trade one and make big trades on one trade at a time. I mean, that's kind of the antithesis of, of diversification. On the other hand, you do have traders who, who are trying to do lots of positions and diversify, you know, uh, diversify their risk. So you, in, in this book and in, other, in the other, other Marker Wizard books, so you do have both camps and they're both pretty, you know, pretty strong on the way they're doing it is right. And they're both right because what they're doing is right for them, which is obvious because they've been successful doing it. And that goes down to the thing that there are certain traits that are common and there are other traits which are a matter of personal comfort and style and trading with what fits for for themselves. So diversification is one. Well, if you're using technical analysis, fundamental analysis, or some combination of, of the two is another example of it depends on the trader. So, you know, sure, you can find lots of traders in those in the Mark Wizard books that are purely technical and lots that are purely fundamental. Uh, it doesn't mean that one camp is wrong. They're both right because for each of those camps, it's working for them. So you can divide traits into traits that are broadly true for almost all successful market wizards, like risk management and discipline is another one. And you could find traits which are, which or characteristics which are really dependent on a trader and there's no right or wrong, such as diversification or or the sector you're trading, or whether you're trading long-term or short-term, or things like that. Another thing that I think you wrote or said somewhere is that uh, another thing that is common, I think, among the market wizards is that you you say something like success requires you not being invested in your opinion. And the way we talk about it often as systematic traders is we never fall in love with our position. And this is actually something that's very interesting because when you just said this earlier in our conversation that most of the market wizards are discretionary, that surprises me in a sense because that is much easier to do when you're a systematic trader, not to fall in love with your own opinion because we don't have any opinion to begin with. How do you think about that kind of slight contradiction that in fact you found that most are discretionary, but at the same time they have this wonderful ability to not be emotionally invested, really? Because we're talking about traders who are not typical of the average trader. Mertz mentioned Druckenmiller earlier. The classic example of not being tied to your position, we talk about somebody who, who in the classic October crash in, in 1987, uh, where the market 
based on futures, goes down 30% in one day without any real news. And the thing about Druckermiller is the day before that day, he was net short, switched to leverage net long on the day before the crash, and then has the and decides over the weekend he makes a mistake, comes in Monday morning, the market gapping lower, gapping lower by 12%, and reverse, not getting out only, not only getting out, but actually reversing back to short. So that is the epitome of, of not being tied to your, 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 your position. Absolutely. In this book, one of Trey Amrit Sal, I think it is, talks about one time he got sort of, he was, you know, like overtrading a bit and he had three correlated positions and really was a marginal trade. And the risk manager asked him what he was doing. And he realized in that instant that he was hoping the trade would work. So hope is another way of saying you're, you're tied to your position, that you're, sure. you have some loyalty. To you. And as soon as he realized, he said it's the only time in his, his career ever made that mistake. As soon as he realized that, he got out of everything instantaneously. He said, you know, never should never, if, if he ever feels that, he, that he's hoping for position, he, he, you know, then it's, it's, something's wrong. Another trade, uh, Jeff Newman, the one who turned the 2,500 into 50 million, says, you know, I, 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 in a trade and I get out of it, it's gone. I, a minute later, I don't even know what it was. I mean, it's just, they're, they're not tied to their positions. You have to be able to admit when you're wrong. You, if, you, if you're dogmatic, you're going to be a failure as a trader. Yeah, very interesting. I want to touch on the topic of uh, nurture versus nature, because that has come up a couple of times, at least, you know, when Niels and I, and we speak with our guests on the Systematic Investor podcast. And, and I wanted to get your opinion on that. Do you think it's possible to just, you know, pick random people off the streets who are not connected to trading in any way, educate them, teach them, teach them rules or behavior and, and emotional control, whatever it is, what you need, you know, you need a bunch of things to become successful traders. Or do you think that you have to be born with a certain skill set, maybe not fully developed, but, you know, with a couple of trades that are just beneficial for you as a trader? Well, you know, the, the, what you're talking about is actually the, the experiment was run in real life by Richard Dennis and Bill Eckhart back in the 80s uh, when they, they did exactly that, where they ran an ad in the Wall Street Journal looking for people with no experience in the markets uh, to be trained as traders. And they did it on two different years. That group became known famously as the Turtles. They're you know, talked about, I think, this New Market Wizards book has, has a chapter on that. Anyway, so, so that experiment has been run. And uh, if you pick the right people, uh, then, yeah, they can turn. And a lot of those people did turn out to be successful traders. But there's also a distinction between, between market wizards and successful, you know, just being, you know, doing okay as a trader or being that profitable. So I, I, I do believe that people who are, generate long-term exceptional performance do have some innate skills or traits or personality that is, that is geared to, to that. They're, they're born to be traders like some a way somebody could be born to be a, a professional sports person. You have to have a certain athletic ability innate to, to do that. And I think you have to have certain innate skills to be 
exceptional as a trainer for a long period of time. But can can people be trained to be better trading or to be pro, you know, go from losing to profitable? Yeah, I think not everybody, but surely even people without exceptional talent can become proficient, but not necessarily market wizards. And I think you touch on a couple of things. I mean, obviously, we're great fans of, of Richard Dennis. And uh, when I had him on the podcast a couple of years ago, there's a couple of things that stood out. One, of course, we all know that he's also said that even if even if we published the rules in the newspaper, not most most people wouldn't be successful because they just can't follow the rules, essentially. But the other thing that he said that I remember, and I think this is a concept that is not often talked about because we all know him and the concept from slogans like the trend is your friend and and the, the rules are your guard, guardian angel. But one thing he said, and I think this is super important, and I'm sure that's something that you've noticed in, in your market wizards as well, and that's persistence. So persistence is, is definitely known. We talked about traders who, uh, you know, who blew up multiple times sometimes and ultimately became very successful. So certainly you have to have a certain innate strength to have that type of precision. Well, we talked about Jason Shapiro, right? Over a decade of of two major blowouts after, you know, building up small, not fortunes, but, you know, decent amount of money, you know, multiplying capital 10 times. So it does take a certain type of personality to be able to come back for that, ultimately being successful. So yeah, persistence is definitely something I would say is is important. Oh, and on the... Uh, I have to add, like with the Richard Dennis quote, the trend is your friend. I can't help that, but be reminded of Ed Sakota's quote, which is in his chapter in, in Market Wizards, uh, the trend is your friend until the end when it bends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I want to maybe go in a slightly different uh, direction. I'm not entirely sure where this uh, will, will go, but we'll see. But when I look at the markets, and as I said, I've been been involved in this since the the 80s um you know the markets are constantly becoming smarter they're becoming more sophisticated we're adding more computer power to analyze and to trade the markets and we have a lot more brain power in general being thrown at them yet at the same time we see you know money that's coming into the markets could probably be characterized as kind of dumber money and I'm thinking about the passive flows which are enormous now and I'm thinking about and with no disrespect but kind of the Robin Hood 13 million you know traders uh, trading accounts being being opened so 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 markets are are changing we know that and and I'm and I'm, and I wanted to ask you whether you whether you think kind of the early market wizards had slightly different skills because markets were different than maybe compared to the newer market wizards where clearly, as Moritz said earlier, I mean, the last 10 years has been very different. Maybe not just because of the passive investing, but also because of QE and whatever. But is there a difference in your opinion in the way or are both set of market or all, all market wizards just able to adapt to whatever the conditions are, so to speak. You raise a, a number of interesting topics there in that one question. First of all, about markets changing. I asked Sakoda when I interviewed him, and this, I'll paraphrase his answer. Um, I asked him, you know, are the markets different now? This is back, and he traded 
And this is the interview I did in the late 80s, but I was talking basically about his trading from the late 60s. Sure. Late 60s versus and then at the you know 80s, mid-80s, late 80s. And I said, oh, the market's different now than they were, you know, say 10, 20 years ago. And he said, the markets are the same. They're always changing. <laughs> uh, so yeah. the point is, yeah, the markets are always changing, but the the characteristics of great traders or the characteristics of what differentiates good trading from bad trading ironically doesn't change. So if you go back to the original first market was first two market wizards books, 89, which are written in written in 88 and 91, and now compared this to the, this book 30 years later, there's a, a lot of if you look at the conclusions I had in those two books about what's good trading, what's bad trading, and advice, it's, there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of similarity, despite all the changes. Now, th- this whole thing about chain, this was my biggest surprise in doing when I did this book. You hit exactly on what I was thinking, which is I did the, well, the earlier books I did since then. You know, back down, Those track records were established not only pre-massive computer power, we were talking even pre-PC days, right? So we go from right. that... To, to a world where you have enormous quantification, as we talked about earlier, you have shops like Renaissance and you know those where you have maybe even hundreds of quants and you have supercomputer power and you know it's a completely different world than it was back in you know back in the seventies, right? So that's 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 a tremendous and you think and I thought with all that quant power applied to the markets that you could no longer get records like. The original market was right. that you weren't going to get a, a Marcus doing, you know, several hundred percent a year. Yet in this book, I've got multiple traders doing some, you know, so maybe maybe better than half the book are traders doing over triple digit returns for ten years or longer. You know, so and that's that's that was surprising to me. It, it, it told me that even though the markets have changed tremendously, there is still a niche for for the right type of trader with the right type of skills. Now, the other element of this massive amount of people coming into the market, like, and I don't have any, bot, you know, I'm not talking about Rodman traders per se, but that's an example, but getting a lot of people going into trading who don't necessarily have any skill, that's where there's a big danger they can get lucky for short term, but end up, you know, losing. And I think if you don't have an edge, if you don't have skill, and I say this quite explicitly, in the in the conclusion, the, actually the epilogue of the book, it's beyond the conclusion, is that the world can be divided into two types of uh, people when it comes to investing slash trading. There are people who have the passion and the skill and an edge and discipline, and for them, they could well do better than indexes or whatever, and that's fine. And you're not going to get you know, super type of performance, you know, doing passive investing. So there is a world where, and I believe the official market hypothesis is completely wrong. So so there is a world where where it makes sense for people not to be passive investors and to, to do their own trading. On the other hand, most people are involved in the markets because they want to make money quickly. And and if that's what they're all they've got, those people they could be successful short term because of luck, but ultimately they're going to be unsuccessful. And for those people, even though I believe the efficient market hypothesis is wrong, 
Ironically, they'd be better off investing as if it were right, namely putting money in a, in a, in a passive fund and, and holding it for 30 years because sooner or later they're going to lose because they don't have the edge and there's a transaction cost. And by that, I'm not talking about commissions because you know there's no commission saying Robinhood. But I'm talking about the bid aspirin. Yeah. So there are lots of contradictions. I mean, a lot of people say that some of the best investment records that I've seen are, you know, you know, there's this story from Fidelity where they looked into the accounts that had done the best. They found out these were people who had died and they, you know, just left the money there for 30 years and they've done tremendously well. And then at the same time, you find people who are some of the most active traders you can find and they are also doing tremendously well. Um, and of course, the 99% uh, are somewhere in between. Yeah, but all the, all the studies I've seen When you talk about mutual fund type investors, those those who are going in and out or whatever, oh, in fact, it's not even that. It's like if you look at what does the average investor, and there's been a number of studies done this way, what does the average investor make in any given mutual fund? They'll almost invariably, unless they just held it the whole time, they'll have the same record. But if they didn't hold it the whole time, invariably they'll do much worse than, than the fund itself because people – instinctively have the wrong emotions about when to get in and out. And like Eckhart said in my interview with him, it, that it, it, it's not just that people will, you know, that they'll, they'll do random. He says, our, our human nature is such that people will do worse than random. So he's arguing that it's not a matter of like a monkey throwing darts at, at the prices will do as well as a professional manager's He's saying the monkey will do better because the monkey doesn't have our human emotions, which will lead us wrong. Yeah, yeah. Which kind of ties nicely into something I want to talk about. I don't know about you, Mort, but I'm sure this might interest you as well. Because one of the things that I think either you wrote or you, you said somewhere is that percentage of winning trades may be the most harmful indicator to look at. And what's really interesting about that to me is that when you look at that, inevitably you're trying to find some level of consistency. And consistency seems to be a really bad thing according to your findings. At the same time, consistency is what our investors want. And we come from the trend-following world where there is no consistency, to be frank. So how do we bridge this gap by con not even convincing them, but compelling them to accept that they shouldn't choose based on where can I get the straight line performance, you know, allow the performance to be inconsistent and you will make more money over time? Yeah, so that consistency... Glad you raised that. That's one of the most counterintuitive lessons in in, in this book. And probably, I may have, no, it's actually, I think it only appears in this Unknown Market Wizards book that just came out. I don't believe at this point came out in any other Market Wizards books, but I can think of at least two traders who who talked about consistency being bad. One, one I think, I think was the one was, I think, Amrit who said uh, that I asked him what, He, and he started out for his initial years. He worked in a prop, prop, tra a prop trader, you know, in a group with we saw other traders. Even now, he does trade in a group of other traders, but uh, you know, professional. But the early on, particularly where traders came in, came and some succeeded, some didn't. I asked him what was the distinguishing factor. He said one of the, 
One of the things he noticed about the traders who failed was they strived for consistency. They were trying to make money every month. And his point was that the market is not going to give you, the market doesn't care about what you want. The market is not going to run on a, on a, like a train schedule. If there's going to be times when there's lots of opportunities, there's going to be times where there are very few opportunities. Now, if you're trying to make money every month, and it's just one of those periods where your approach is not providing any real opportunities, you'll stretch to do trades. You'll take suboptimal trades. And you'll basically mess up your record because you're taking trades which your methodology says you shouldn't trade. So, And it comes out of the wanting consistency. Peter Brand says... Uh, uh, I think he used the, the phrase, the markets are not an annuity. <laughs> so going in with the right. idea that you're going to make money is every month is just, it's not the way it really works. So, uh, and, and the, 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 uh, the thing you began about, uh, I said that percentage of, tra- of winning trades is one of the most harmful statistics. Absolutely. Because it's like, look, it's like looking half at half a picture. So, What's important is not is not the percent of winning trades. What's important is the percent of winning trades times the average win per winning trade over the percentage of losing trades times the, the average losing trade loss. That's what's important. So if you're only looking at the percent, but not considering how big your wins are versus how big your losses are, it's it's like ridiculous. It's uh, it's like uh, you know, trying to answer you know seven plus x is equals what, but you don't know what x. So you're not taking x into account. I call that kind of the offense defense ratio, right? Because it shows you how good you are when you're really making money, yeah. but also how good you are to control your losses. Yeah. So both of those are so the trainers in, inevitably. In fact, almost every trainer in this, in this book and other books, they have this characteristic, and particularly in this book, I think more so than any book I've ever done. You have these traders whose whose gains are just hugely asymmetric relative to their losses. That's what's right. important. That's where the success is. It's not that they win. They probably lose. Most of them lose most more than fifty percent of the time. But when they win, their their wins their wins just completely trounce the size of their losses. And you earlier on you mentioned we talked about the trader who had the triple digit return, and you talked about the risk. The thing is that's not for everybody. That's because he's extraordinarily disciplined. He would have been out of that. If that trade didn't immediately go his way, he would have been out in seconds. I mean, you know, he yeah. has a premise, a hypothesis. This is going to come out. The market's going to go this way. If it doesn't immediately go that way, he'll be out. And, and that's why in his track record, these traders with these great returns, in most cases, did not have large losses. They didn't have big drawdowns because they really cut the losses very quickly. So it doesn't necessarily mean if you have very large gains that you're taking very large risk, because if you have the discipline or the methodology to be out very quickly if you're wrong, then that's not going to be true necessarily. Yeah, no, absolutely. Mort, I've got a couple of questions left, but I, I and because I want to be respectful of, of Jack's time, what about yourself, uh, Mort? Do you have any left in the tank? Yeah, we're over the hour mark. I mean, I would have one question, but maybe your question is more interesting. I don't know if you have a couple left, then... Uh, well, okay. But, but I, I'll give you mine. I'll give you mine, and then we see how we go. Personally, I'd like to trade as, as short-term as I can, because the shorter term I trade, the smoother my returns are going to be, the less my drawdowns are going to be, because I'm not holding positions for that long, right? 
But then there's problems with that because, you know, the shorter term systems, they no longer work as well as they once did. And the shorter term I trade, the more I pay in terms of commissions and the more I pay in terms of bid offer and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when you look at the unknown market wizards, those unsung heroes, to what extent can you separate them into like, okay, here's people that really trade short term. Let's say short term is intraday out to like one to three day holding periods or something like that. But then there's also traders that have like very long term hold periods where they, you know, depend on trades really running their way. Like we as trend following traders, we depend on trades really, you know, running their way and like, you know, one or two trades a year paying for many, many small losers. To what extent can you categorize them into that way, into, into those categories? Well, you basically have traders that fall into both camps. It's a matter of style. Okay. Now, you're quite right about short-term trading having this problem of transaction costs being very expensive. But there's a difference. So there's a number, there's a few traders in the book completely different methodologies, whose, whose trades are not held very long, often only for, only for a day, and then maybe a minor position is held longer term if they believe it's a longer term potential. But most of the money is being made on getting quick moves on, on, on a particular day. Now, it's not a matter, that can't work if you're doing it all the time. But for this, like I think of one trader who's trading on earnings and just always out on the end of the day, and another trader might be trading on events and always out, not always out, but out of most division before the end of the day. Completely different approaches. But in both cases, they're looking for very specific instances, sporadic events. They're not trading like every day, short term. It's not like they're trading a, a short term trend following methodology where they're using one minute bars and and uh, trying to go long and short. That type of trading will just eat up, will just eat up uh, I will get killed because of transaction costs. So that's true. But if you have, if you, or I should have added also somebody like Brandt who's looking for precise chart patterns, typically holds it for short uh, uh, points of time. In all these cases, they're looking for very, very different methodologies, but looking for very specific points of time that fulfill certain conditions. And then, and that's when they trade. It's not like they're trading that way every day. If they did, that would be a problem. But they couldn't trade that way every day because, by definition, they're looking for special situations. I want to go in a slightly different direction towards the the end of our conversation, Jack, because you uh, you have uh, many skills that I would love to uh, be able to uh, share with our audience. So we get a lot of questions. A lot of uh, our listeners, of course, are investors and traders themselves. They develop their own systems. They do a lot of research. They do a lot of testing. So let's pretend that you ran a backtest and you had several different combinations of parameters that you could choose and you sit after you've done it, you sit and you look at the output of each of these tests with different statistics that you can look at, like the sharp, I know you don't really like that, Sotino, gain to pain ratio, average winning month over average losing month or whatever it may be, percentage of 12 months positive returns, there are so many of them. How do you go about finding the parameter combination, meaning what are, what, which of these statistics would you pay most attention to? And maybe it's a combination of statistics. Maybe you want to create some kind of scoring system, give them a weight. Uh, you know, I don't know, but but what would you, where would you guide a lot of uh, people trying to do this? Okay, so uh, 
I'll answer your question about the re- which statistic, but first, I think way, way more important than which statistic is that the testing methodology exclude hindsight. That to me is the most important message I can impart on people using systematic approaches. And the biggest pitfall, and the whole question of parameter selection is a big pitfall because many, many times that parameter selection is a consequence of uh, a testing approach that used hindsight. So you end up attributing meaning to something which is just a matter of random fluctuation. So again, the first thing is avoid any hindsight. And how do you do that? I, I, I want to get into it because it's too long of a topic, but I, the simplest, I'm not the simplest way, but the best way in my mind is that you have a methodology where you test and then oh, and use those results for some defined forward period. And then that's your results for the forward period. Then you could retest and do the same thing and use it for the next forward period. So like a walk forward. That's a very good yeah. way of, of getting true results, you know, getting more real results. But you have to kind of try to duplicate trading in real time. So any approach that kind of takes all the data and, and runs it and see what would have worked best in the past, boom. By definition, throw it out. It's meaningless. You just contaminated everything. So the only types of results that are that are meaningful are results which did not include the data you tested on. That's the most important thing. That's 20 times more important than anything else I can say about developing systems. Now, as far as what, what secondary thing might be, what statistics you look at, I would say it should be a return risk statistic, not a return, because your returns can always be increased any amount by just increasing your risk. So it's kind of meaningless. So if you're looking at just return, throw it out. It's meaningless. The only thing that's meaningful is return risk. And as far as return risk measures go, my favorites are the gain to pain ratio and the Sortino ratio. So those are my two favorites. And I've defined them in in new book. They are defined. Yes, it's in the appendix in the new book. I noticed that. So that's great. Another reason to buy the book, of course. And great advice, by the way, on the forward walk, because that is something that I think a lot of people may not be aware of. I'm sure a lot of people are aware of it, but there's also a group that that's not. One final question on my side really is that, which is kind of related a little bit to you having interviewed all these managers, but if you were kind of an investor and you had to find a manager, but you could only ask them one question, in terms of your due diligence, what what would that question be? <laughs> That's a good question, but I don't know what single question would put in, would tell me. You know, and I, basically, I'd be more. I'd have to have seen the track record. Not that the track records are necessarily predictive, and there's lots of flaws in using past track records for future performance. But you want to establish that the person in the past has been successful in return risk terms, because that doesn't guarantee anything, but. If they haven't been successful in the past and were not significantly successful, there's no reason for them to expect them to change, right? So as a first filter, I'd want to see the track record and really good return risk. I'd want, I guess, it's I don't know what single question, but I'd want to feel that they are very conscious of risk management as, as, as more important than necessarily their methodology. And I agree with that. And I heard, I don't know if it would be mine 
only question, but I like the question actually. And and the one question that I heard someone say that if they could only ask one question, they would ask, how big a percentage of your own net worth That's is invested in the strategy? That's a good question. Yeah, it is actually. Yeah. yeah. So it touches on what you yeah. just said. Now, before we completely finish, I want to do what we normally do, and that is just quickly run through where we stand in terms of performance of the indices that we always follow. Now, Friday was, I think, kind of a mixed day, and these numbers are, of course, as of Thursday, so we didn't get the full week in as as we uh, as usual. So anyways, the beta 15 index had a good start to November, up uh, 1.5%, but still down a fraction for 2020. The SOCGEN CTA index is up 1.66%, still down less than 2% for the year, though. The trend index, SOCGEN trend index, up almost 2%, and now we're back in positive territory for 2020. The short-term traders index is down 40 bips in November so far, but still up for the year, 1.4%. And of course, very strong week for the equities, up 7.7% for the MSCI World Index, and even bonds made money so far this month. On the other hand, uh, the SOCGEN Multi-Risk Premier Index had a good start to November, but still down 14.5% in 2020. So I think from me, Jack, first of all, thanks so much for spending your Saturday late morning with us. We really appreciate it, as I'm sure all our listeners do. And and you're absolutely as inspirational to listen to as you are uh, reading your books. So this has been a, a real treat. Anywhere where you want to send people that uh, want to pick up not just a book of yours, but want to follow some of your work anywhere particularly you want to send them, uh, Jack? Well, yeah, if uh, if it's on Twitter, I just it's at Jack Schwager, my name. If it's a web, it's Jack Schwager, again, my name.com. Also, we didn't talk about it, but I'm involved with a startup called Funseeder. And Absolutely, Funseeder.com yeah. is a platform where people can get free analytics on their trading performance. So those are the primary places, I guess. Yeah, no, that's great. So on that note, we're wrapping up this week's conversation. We hope that you have enjoyed it and took lots of notes. And if you did, please also head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review so more people can listen to Jack's wise words here. And make sure, of course, that you send your own question to us so that we can answer them next week. Info at toptradersonblock.com and we'll do our best um, to um, get those answered for you. From Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, be well. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.